Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When he, that's Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, the centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. She rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Let's pray again. Lord, we ask that you would give life and light to our hearts. Such frail creatures we are. Your word will stand forever and we ask that even now it would stand in our hearts by your spirit's working. For Christ's sake. Amen. Perspective is an interesting thing. 
Right? It, it can totally change how something looks. It's actually my favorite category of street art. If you're ever in a big city and you, you travel throughout the, the streets and sidewalks of the big city, you have all the different street performers trying to make a little bit of money either by busking and, you know, playing their guitars or by, uh, you know, dressing up as a statue or the various things. My favorite category though are the giant paintings or chalk drawings that look great from one perspective. But then as you get closer, it's actually been stretched out over a matter of 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 feet. So when you're right there on it, it looks terrible. But when you've stepped down the street and look, it's a beautiful landscape or a portrait or whatever it is. Perspective is an amazing thing as it totally changes how we can see a situation and see really the reality that exists there. It's intriguing how it shapes how we process the world. It's one of those interesting things along the way in marriage counseling where you're talking with a husband and wife and as they are arguing about something or some situation and you can ask one spouse, well, what did, what happened? What, what did it look like? What did it, you know, mean? And they'll say, well, it was this and my spouse did that and it was bad because of this. Oh, that sounds awful. Ask the other spouse, oh, it was this way and it was bad this way and the spouse did that and it was bad because of this. Totally different. You would think that they're describing completely different situations as they look completely different because two completely different people are there. Now, another thing that is intriguing is really how, uh, I would say, difficulty shapes our perspective as humans. Uh, how really when life feels good and feels easy, we tend to think more highly about everybody around us. But the second that life gets difficult or gets hard, we tend to think more lowly of those around us. I mean, how many times have you watched that happen for those that work outside the home or you had a good day outside the home and you, you come home and because life is good outside the home, you walk in and life's good inside the home. And it doesn't matter if the kids are burning the house down or if whatever's happening, you're happy because it's a good day. Your perspective is positive. Or those that maybe work inside the home. You know those days where the other party comes home. And my goodness, are they grumpy. I didn't earn this today. Maybe yesterday, but not today. I haven't done anything to deserve this. What, what perspective did they bring with them in the home? Bring with them from outside. This changed everything that I've done. So nothing I do can please them. Well, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with their perspective. And I would suggest that we really do this oftentimes with Jesus. We think of him one very specific way. We, we think of him intellectually because the Bible tells us so. We think of him as good. And we believe that he's good. And we believe that most of the time because most of the time our lives are by and large easy. But the second that we get a little bit of difficulty or howling wind that sounds like a banshee directly over my head... <laughs> or a year that perhaps challenges our expectations, it's amazing how quickly our perspective, well, not just the year, not just ourselves, not just our spouses or our neighbors, but even our perspective on Jesus 
changes. And I'm going to humbly suggest that Matthew chapter 8 verses 1 through 17 is, Lord willing, going to provide a little bit of a corrective for us all as we think about our lives in 2020 and think about the triune God. Now, how you preach three passages like this, we're, we're going to tackle it a little bit like if this were a high-end art movie. Right? If you go to some fancy art house downtown and watch this movie, you would see these three separate uh, stories, but you would see them kind of taking place simultaneously if it was in a movie. And that's how we're going to look at it. All three of them at the exact same time. Now, interestingly, in all three of these, Matthew's put them together for a reason. All three of these are, are connecting together to show a certain aspect of the Lord Jesus and showcasing his ministry in a very particular fashion. And first and foremost, all three of these are, are combined together to highlight, to, to instruct God's people about the tremendous compassion that the Lord Christ has. He's just finished his first recorded sermon in the New Testament. It ends with verse 28 and 29 of the previous chapter, all of the crowd marveling because they've never heard anybody speak with the authority that this man does. They've listened to their priests, they've listened to their teachers, they've listened to their rabbis. No one has spoken the way this Jesus has. He knows what he's talking about and he speaks with authority. And in verse 1 of chapter 8, he leaves his preaching post and motors down the mountain and the crowds kind of meander with him. They track with him, they follow with him and watch what happens. And in verse 2, a problem starts. A leper shows up. Now again, today we probably wouldn't catch all of the same emotional kind of stigma that this would carry with it, but a leper would have been the unclean of the unclean. A leper would have been the one whose physical sickness would have marked this person as contaminated and contagious and unholy and must be excluded and kept away. And in case you want to kind of draw an incorrect analogy to today in any fashion, has nothing to do with our current medical situation. In fact, one of the other gospel writers acknowledges this man is full of leprosy and probably in the condition that we're guessing where like fingers are starting to fall off when he does things. Right? This is the kind of guy that when he walks up, you're like, whoa, I might be sick. Right? This is the kind of guy that when he walks up, you don't really want your kids to see him, much less be near him. Now, this would have been an incredibly complicated situation for the Jews because here you have a guy that is, one, disgusting, most likely, but also he's unclean. And I don't just mean he's contagious or he has some nasty bacterial disease. He is spiritually unclean. And for a Jew to make contact with this person would make them unclean. He's the kind of guy that you probably could see coming a little bit before he got there because the crowd would part around him. Nobody wants to be near this guy. And he asks a simple question. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, he's acknowledging, Lord, you, you are the one who has the ability. Now, it's an issue not of ability. It's an issue of desire. If you, Jesus, wish to make me whole, you can. You don't have to. It's not like somebody walking up to me, right? 
if you wish, you could cure my cancer. I, I can't do that. That's beyond my ability. I mean, if you came up to me and said, if you wish, you can stomp on my toe. Well, I can do that. I can't cure your cancer. I, I, don't, I don't have the ability to do that. Here, this man is acknowledging this is exactly what Jesus has. He has the ability to work in that which is unseen and that which is unfixable. If you will, Lord Jesus, please do this thing. Jesus does something in verse 3 that would have been absolutely staggering in that not only does he cross the gap between him and this man in engaging him in conversation, which would have been scandalous, but he reaches out and touches him to heal him, which is, I mean, you want to talk about a collective gasp in the room. Don't know how much of the crowd has followed him to this point, but you better believe no one's talking at this point. You ever been in a crowd where something so serious happens that you could like literally hear a pin drop? It's so awkward. It's intense. Jesus crosses the gap to place his hand upon him. Now again, Jesus being uh, holiness and cleanliness incarnate, he can correct this. Story two is equally shocking, but not perhaps in the gruesome medical way where it's like, his fingers are falling off or anything like that. Instead, Jesus gets to Capernaum. He's arriving at home base and he here interacts with a centurion. This centurion is uh, a Gentile. He's not a man who would have been known for uh, being a Jew in any way. He had, as we find out from other gospel writers, been very useful uh, to the Jews. In fact, actually, the way he's introduced to Jesus is he's a worthy man, uh, simply because he had been so helpful to the Jews. It's an interesting conundrum as to what he's going to say about himself, as he's unworthy, but the disciples acknowledge that he is but again, would have been equally kind of problematic. Here, we have a Gentile. A Gentile who's asking for mercy to be extended by the Lord Jesus. My servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. What this is, is most likely a serving boy. We're not talking about a grown-up who's having a hard time. We're not talking about an aging person who's been a part of the family. No, this is most likely a boy. You could guess maybe in the neighborhood of 10 to 12 who has some sort of terrible disease that is crippling him and being incredibly agonizing for him. And this Gentile, this unclean man comes and pleads with the Lord and says, will you please heal my boy that I care for so dearly? Jesus' response in verse 7, again, if there was a crowd, ooh, there would have been a gasp. Yeah, I'll heal him. I'm going to come to your house and heal him. Well, you know you don't do that. Jews don't go into the houses of Gentiles. That's unclean. You can't cross that gap. You can't cross that bridge. But he will. I have to wonder how much of a sense of humor Matthew has. A braver man than I might make a joke here as he's laid out the unclean leper, the unclean Gentile, and then the mother-in-law. But I won't make that joke. 
The third scene, Jesus arrives at Peter's house. It's where Peter lives with his wife. His mother-in-law lives in the home. Andrew lives here as well, we know at this point, and arrives in ministry. We don't know very much of what else is going on. Interestingly, there's no faith exercised here. There's not a unique request for healing. There's not anything other than the Lord Jesus walks into the room and sees an opportunity and extends kindness. Heals her fever, heals her body, restores her to health. She's made whole again. It's intriguing how Matthew has clumped all three of these together because you see the Lord Jesus in just this unbelievable tenderness toward people that, by and large, you would think would never have extended it to. I mean, absolutely not extended it to a a gentleman who works for Rome. I mean, we're expecting Jesus at some point to overthrow Rome. Why would he extend kindness to Rome? Why would he help Rome? A man so filled with disease, his body is at most likely at this point close to falling apart if it's not yet. And the Lord is so kind and crosses the gap to them. Crosses that tremendous chasm that socially would have never been crossed. It shouldn't have been crossed. It couldn't have been crossed. And in doing so, Jesus showcases for his people a a tremendous element of his ministry that it, it is his kindness, it is his compassion, and certainly his obedience to the Father that this is how Christ interacts with his people. Coming to them. Entering into the places where we live, in the lives that we've been called to live, the places and stations that we have been placed, and ministering there. I love thinking about Jesus ministry in this way as a a locational ministry. To think that He's currently seated at the right hand of the Father. That's physically where He is, but in doing so He sent His Spirit to live inside me. And to marvel. What what a terrible job the Spirit has. I mean, have you ever thought about that? His ministry is literally to live in your heart and to minister from the inside out. Out of all the rotten places to have to live. But then even in doing so, Jesus here at the supper in just a moment is going to take us even up into the heavenly places to nourish us in his humanity, even in our union with him, is so kind, so compassionate, crossing gaps that you would never have expected to see happen. I think this is an imperative point for Christians to kind of get into our brains. It is so easy for us to think that we deserve the ministry of Jesus Because we're good people. It's so easy for us to read passages like this and say, you know, Jesus really is amazing because he helped those losers and those bad people. And again, I love, I suspect Matthew has a bit of a sense of humor here. In coupling the mother-in-law, who's obviously not the loser or the bad person. I have to say that.
But showcasing how Jesus comes to his people, he ministers where we are, he, he works within us. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. Showcases his compassion. It, it showcases his power in the most spectacular fashion. Again, you know how it works. Jesus says, I will heal you, verse 3. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And I would love to have seen what that looked like. I can't wait. I'll get to heaven. I'll get to ask this guy. Did he regrow fingers? Did his ears suddenly appear? Has his nose already fallen off and now it's back on? What did that look like? I mean, did he just, Jesus says, I will be clean. And suddenly this guy's like, I feel 25 years younger and mostly less dead. What what was that moment like? I love contemplating kind of the science behind the miracles that it's not just that Jesus does this thing, but all that's involved is it's, it's healing every part of this man's body from this bacterial infection. The centurion one is just a new kind of neat addition as it's, it's done over distance. Jesus hears the man's statement of faith. It's absolutely shocking. Jesus marvels at it. That's a fun idea to think about. But then heals the man over distance. It's not like he has to, you know, get his hands ready. It's not like the faith healers of today where you at least have to come up to the front of the stage so they can hit you on the forehead. It's not waiting until you give a certain amount of money, and once that certain amount of money is given, well then, you know, uh, salvation can be extended. No, he just, Jesus says it and it happens. It's done. Go. The last one, just reaching out and gently touching the mother-in-law, and instantly she's well. Kindness and, and, and power, compassion and power, going so Intimately, hand in hand. And I I think that's something that certainly Christians today can contemplate and marvel at is, is just the reality, the idea of kindness and power being so closely linked in the person of the Lord Jesus. You realize those are two attributes that we very rarely ever think of existing in any other person in human history. We can name a list of Dozens or hundreds of men and women that we think of as being incredibly powerful. Or we might think of dozens of men and women who we might think of as being incredibly kind. But for Jesus to show both of those attributes so beautifully and so powerfully. I think those two, however, though, show the backdrop for the part that I perhaps like to emphasize the most in these passages is really, it's Jesus does all of this with a purpose. This is perhaps the part that the church has done the least excellent job of, of acknowledging and talking about with miracles like this. You, you grow up in Sunday school on the flannel graph and you, you hear tale after tale after tale, true tale of how Jesus heals and how Jesus works wonders and how Jesus does miracles and how he does those today in our lives today. And all those are true, but we sometimes have not spent enough time talking about the purpose behind what he's doing. This, to me, is the most interesting part of these passages, uh, certainly because verse 4 is one of the most just mind-blowing passages in the entirety of the Scriptures. Jesus heals the leper and then gives him what has to be the most confusing command ever given. Don't tell anybody. 
Don't tell anybody. I mean, normally you would want to sing Jesus' praise, right? Singing praises to Jesus is a good thing. Doing it now is sinful. Telling everybody Jesus works in your life, that's a good thing. You should do that. Doing it now is sinful. Proclaiming the the healing of the Lord Jesus and transforming body and soul, that's a good thing. You should do that right now. It's sinful. What an interesting conundrum. Why? Well, because Jesus has a purpose. He's told this young man, this leper, a most likely young man, to be uh, quiet, to go show himself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses has commanded for proof to them. What he's telling this gentleman to do is to follow the proper Old Testament protocol for him to be made clean. Now to be made clean, not just physically by Jesus, but to be made clean ceremonially amongst his peers. But Jesus has something more in mind. There's a a lot happening behind the text. We think most likely what's happening here is that Jesus, you can see throughout his ministry, is waiting for his disciples to get ready. You realize he could have come in and started his ministry and generated massive crowds instantly. And they would have killed him because he would have made sure of that. But his disciples aren't ready yet. I mean, this is the very beginning of his ministry. This is right after his first sermon chronologically. Instead, what is he doing? He's interestingly making sure the crowd stays small. So that when it's time, he generates the proper crowd and makes sure they kill him. The amazing thing is there's no accidents in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And if you interestingly read the Gospels, so much of his ministry is intentionally getting away from the crowd, 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 until the disciples say, we believe you are the Christ, you are the Lord of heaven and earth. And then he sets his face directly to Jerusalem. He brings as much of a crowd with him. He does it at Passover, brings everyone with him to make sure the crowd is there that would send him to the cross. He is a master strategist. Masterful. How he's controlling the battlefield of his ministry. He's making no mistakes. The centurion, it's likewise such an amazing thing that he here instead uses this situation and opportunity to heal uh, the servant of a Gentile man so that the Jews would be condemned by the faith of a man who should never have it. Again, it's weird, the only time we hear Jesus marveling at something. He's genuinely astonished. He's astonished at the faith of a man who should never have faith. Well, by the world's eyes, certainly not by Jesus' eyes. The man says, look, I understand that you're in charge of everything. I'm in charge of servants. When I tell them to do things, they have to do it. When I tell my soldiers to jump, they jump and then figure out how high in the air. That's what they do. It's how it works. Jesus, you're king over creation. All you have to do is say, disease be gone and it goes. That's how it works. Jesus' response is telling. I look in verse 10 and a half there. I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. This is the first time I've seen anything like this, Jesus says. In fact, actually, many will come from all over the world and will enjoy true salvation, while the Jews, the sons of the kingdom, verse 12, will instead experience hell because they never believe in the Christ. 
Jesus uses this, as a, uses this as an opportunity to showcase one of the most beautiful portraits of faith in the entirety of the New Testament. We don't see faith like this very many places. For a man to literally come up to Jesus and say, just, just say it, just command it. You control everything. I'm not worried. Just make it happen. Please. Interestingly, we see it differently in the third one is instead he heals her, he touches her, fever leaves her, she's restored to health, and the sentence doesn't even end before she behaves the way mother-in-laws behave. She begins to serve. Cares for him. And in fact, actually doesn't just care for him, does such a brilliant job, they invite the entire community in that evening. Right? That is a task that Herculean in its own right To be on your deathbed a couple of minutes later, be restored to health, and then have the entire town in your home a matter of hours later. And in doing so, he's fulfilling uh, fulfilling Isaiah 53 that we already read there in verse 17. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He's showing that he knows what he's doing and he's doing things for a purpose. He has an intention. He has a design. He has an incredible idea in his mind. Now, the interesting thing is that when we read this and we look at his ministry back in the Gospels, we can go, oh, well, that makes sense. It would make sense that Jesus has a plan for what he's doing and he's not just running around willy-nilly, kind of just making it up as he goes along. I mean, certainly it feels like I do that in my life a lot of the time, but it's comforting to know Jesus didn't do that. But you know how I started talking about perspective? How our perspective kind of changes everything with how we see the world. Unfortunately, I think sometimes, and particularly when we enter seasons of difficulty, we turn these parts of our brain off. Is Jesus any less compassionate today than he was back then? Is he any less compassionate? Was this one of those moments where... You know, he's walking down the street and he sees like the homeless guy who just looks really bad. And you're like, I don't really have the money to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways because it's just a moment of weakness. You know, were these three just kind of moments of weakness where Jesus was like, well, you just caught me on a bad day. I need to eat a little food. I'm just tired. So I'll just heal them and just move on. Is he any less compassionate today? Is he any less compassionate from heaven? Is he any less compassionate toward you and toward me than he is to these people? And of course, you know the answer to it. It's an obvious answer. No, of course not. Our Lord never changes. The train of God never changes. There is no shadow of turning with thee. His compassion never waxes and wanes. It stays the same. So when we enter our seasons of difficulty or frustration or anger or whatever else they are, it is imperative that we stick in our brains and remember our God is compassionate even now. Our Savior is compassionate even now. He has not changed His nature. And you can see, again, the flow in our brains. Well, we would say, first, maybe it's his motives. Maybe Jesus doesn't want to help me. Maybe Jesus doesn't want to heal me. Maybe Jesus, it's a lack of desire. Well, we find out, no, scriptures are clear. His desire, his compassion never changes for his people. So maybe it's an issue of power. 
Maybe Jesus isn't big enough to handle whatever problem I have. Now, the second you say that, it sounds dumb. And so usually we don't say it that clearly in our mind. We'll find other ways to make it sound a little bit less heretical, like Jesus isn't big enough for whatever issue it is I have. Well, of course, again, you know the answer to that. His power never changes, it never waxes, it never wanes, it never grows greater, it never grows weaker. He's not like Superman where he derives his power from the sun. He's the Lord God. Perfect in power and glory and that never changes. And so when it comes time for us to think about the Lord Christ in our life, it's imperative that we understand his compassion for me has never changed. On top of that, his power in my life has never changed. It's not absent. So it then makes me reconsider the third one, his purpose. And I would suspect that this is actually the bigger issue for most of us is that we forget that God actually knows what he's doing. Or at least, I guess, maybe not that, we forget that he knows better than I do as to what he's doing. You realize that's what the vast majority of our complaints in life are? If you actually pay attention to your heart, the vast majority of the time when you complain, what you're actually saying is, I know God is at work, he's doing something I just think he's doing something worse than I do. I got a better plan. I can figure it out a bit more clearly, a bit more carefully. I got a better plan than God does. And it's intriguing how that actually showcases a probably different problem in our own hearts, doesn't it? Where when we go to interact with our difficulty, when we go to interact with our challenges and our struggles, that we tend to fall flat uh, instead of responding correctly. You realize none of these things ever happen without these difficulties. This leper never gets to spend the rest of his life praising Jesus for his healing. Think about how many people he gets to tell throughout the rest of his life that the Lord Jesus healed him. He gets to be recorded in scripture as having been healed and none of that happens without leprosy. The centurion gets opportunity to make Jesus marvel. That doesn't happen without painful paralysis. You think about how Peter's mother-in-law's ministry changes. <laughs> yeah, by the way, I was like dead like an hour ago. Almost, not quite. Hey, welcome to the home. Would you like some bread? I mean, what does hospitality look like in that way? But it's intriguing, again, as Christians, how how poorly we do with that today. And I think probably part of that is just how we tend to think of things. I'm going to ask it differently. How would 2020 have looked different if the American church had viewed this calendar year as an opportunity to display holiness? How would 2020 have looked different if the American church had been able to rally together and say, you know what? This year is crazy, right? It is an absolutely crazy year. 
crazy in the cities, crazy in the suburbs, crazy in the uh, rural parts of the country. It's crazy medically, it's crazy politically, but you know what? This is our rallying cry. This is an opportunity for us to show everyone else what godliness looks like. It's an opportunity for me to showcase holiness. It's an opportunity for me to showcase the healing that the Lord Jesus has done in my heart and transformed me, and I can share that with you. Do you think maybe our year might have been a little different? I mean, not just Christ Ridge, I'm talking kind of nationally as a, as a, a whole. To think about how often we have, instead of having our mind fixed on, the Lord has a purpose for this. The Lord has a purpose for the coronavirus. It's your holiness. It's not your emotions. It's not your preferences. It's your holiness. The Lord has a purpose for every sickness and difficulty that has come your way. The Lord has a purpose for every challenge that is in your life. The Lord has a purpose for everything that is that burr under the saddle, aggravating you and angering you. And it is for your good and for your holiness. Because His compassion never changes. And His power Never changes. We could even go one step further and really kind of, I guess, make it very applicable and appropriate for us today. Every challenge connected to this building, it's a new building. Like we said, we knew there would be challenges when we came into it. Uh, Getting it in as quickly as we have. Well, you know what? Every challenge connected to this building is an opportunity for holiness. And it's an opportunity for you to display the holiness that Jesus has placed in your life. The change that Jesus has made in you, the work that the Spirit has accomplished. At every point of aggravation, like that, (laughs) is an opportunity to display the love of God and His faithfulness. And his goodness, his gentleness, my self-control, to showcase his hope. You realize we don't think about our challenges that way nearly often enough. We think about what makes me happy. We think about what I think is right. We think about so much about me. And not, what can we show to the glory of God? I'll be honest with you, I'm a little bit of a softy in many ways, and if I were God, none of these three would have happened. And you know what? The church would be lesser off because of it. We would have missed out seeing glorious faith and marvelous service from the mother-in-law. Joyful praise from a leper. The Lord is so much wiser that he places difficulties in our life so his compassion and his power will show.
please, please endeavor to correct your perspective. The election is an opportunity for us to showcase God's goodness in displaying His holiness. Same with COVID. Same with your job. Same with your family. Same with your spouse. Same with your kids. Same with every other difficulty you have. It is an opportunity to showcase the glory of God. May it be that will be the perspective that we will commit ourselves to as we go forth in this place. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And we confess our sins. We are so quick to be uh, stuck in our own opinions. We're Americans. We've been told that's what's most important, what I believe, what I think, my own mind. It's not. Your glory is the most important. And would we please be convinced of your goodness and your power for Christ's sake. Amen.